The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk on 92.7 and 106 FM. Absa CIB, the bank that provides customized treasury tools to manage foreign exchange and risk and reporting, is proud to bring you The Money Show. Absa is a registered FSP. And interesting, it's opening an office in China. 30 years after the economic turnaround began in China, I wonder why the timing is so. So we'll talk to Charles Russell, who's chief executive at CIB, in just a bit. But I'm looking forward to Jonathan Oppenheimer later on. Uh, Jonathan Oppenheimer's great-grandfather, Ernest, arrived in South Africa in the early 1900s as a diamond trader. He worked for a London-based company, German-born family, um, worked for a, for a, a German-based diamond trading company and it saw the opportunity of South Africa, saw the opportunity of the diamond field, saw the opportunity of gold, saw the opportunity of minerals generally and was an absolute visionary. Um, ended up developing many of the, the the copper belt as we know today in Zambia was the work of Opp- Ernest Oppenheimer. Um, he died, and Harry Oppenheimer took over the business. And if you've read Michael Cardo's book, or if you've not read Michael Cardo's book, and you want to understand capitalism in South Africa's twentieth century, it's a really good um, context to to focus in on. And then Nicky Oppenheimer took over the business. They sold then De Beers to Anglo American, and Jonathan Oppenheimer now is doing all so, all sorts of really interesting things, which we will share with you at about half past seven. We'll talk to the ports regulator in just a moment. I've just seen proposals for tariff increases through the ports. I have some questions. Uh, We will talk about side hustles and whether your boss allows you to have a side hustle. And if you do have a side hustle and you're keeping it a secret from your boss, why do you keep it a secret? Should your boss be encouraging a side hustle? That in business unusual this evening. And then critical questions as always with Wendy Nola. Wendy Nola, what service you should expect from an insurance broker. Somebody who sells you a policy and disappears into the night. Uh, what sort of service should you expect from them? Uh, look forward to your calls, your comments, your questions, all on the regular numbers, of course. You can give us a shout on anything that is on your mind. Quick question for you tonight. A former South African deputy president is joining the board of Mercedes-Benz South Africa. Which former deputy president Is that, I wonder? Give us a shot. Let me know what you think. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. And no, it's not Jacob Zuma. He was a deputy president at one time, but it's not him. He's got other things to do. Transnet. Uh, has secured the rights to up charges for anyone using South Africa's ports by above inflation over the next three years. This year, there'll be an increase of nearly 5%. Next year, more than 6 And in 2025, a nearly 11% increase. These increases approved by the CEO with the ports regulator, Joey Mulawuzzi. And Joey is on the line to us this evening uh, from KZN. Uh, explain to me how we get these big, inc- these big increases, if you would, Joey, because we, we used to the ESCOM increases, ESCOM goes to NERSA, NERSA either approves or disapproves. You've gone through a, a, a process with, with, uh, with the ports company within Transnet. Explain to me how you come to the tariff determination. Uh, thank you and good evening, uh, uh, Bruce. Uh, good to be on your show. Uh, what you've highlighted is what the, t- the ports authority applied for ah. to the ports regulator. Right. And they use a tariff methodology, which we consult significantly with stakeholders and the port system, uh, which then determines uh, through a formula uh, what they are allowed to raise uh, in order to do CAPEX, OPEX, and everything else insofar as uh, port infrastructure development is concerned in the country. 
Um, so the 4.98% is what they applied for in 2024-2025 financial year. However, the decision that we announced today uh, talks to what the port regulator approved, which is not the 4.98%. Okay, so tell me what you have approved. This is quite a complicated statement for a layman to understand. What have mm-hmm. you approved? Okay, um, I won't get into the technicalities of the tariff sure. methodology. Safe to say that it allows the authority as the infrastructure port infrastructure company uh, of the country to raise revenues from port users to be able to implement their CAPEX, their OPEX, yeah. uh, cover their tax uh, liability, as well as uh, then uh, any return on their investment, right? Right. Uh, the regulator has four months within which to do the assessment and uh, the announcement today is the culmination of that process and the approved average tariff adjustment for the 2024-2025 financial year is 0%. Okay, so zero. So I'm sure that wasn't clear in the announcement and so clearly I misunderstood the announcement. So you're giving them Mm -hmm. zero this year. What about next year? They applied for nearly 6%, I think 5.8%, and they applied for nearly 11% in 2025. What are the the approvals on that? So um, what we have is a multi-year tariff methodology. The intention is to give port users a sense of if everything remained constant, what will the adjustments be in the outer two years? We only set the year, uh, the, the next year, in this case, the 2024-25 uh, financial year. Because there are a number of uh, factors in the uh, formula that are affected, amongst others, by inflation and so on, when we approve, we do not uh, then uh, uh, determine the tariffs for the outer years. Those are just uh, indicative. Right. Okay, so are you indicating 6 and 11% in future years or what are you indicating? No, we're not indicating 6 and 11%. That's what the authority based on the information yep. at their disposal I think uh, the application for next year would be. The port regulator's um, tariff methodology um, uh, has over the years uh, yielded tariff adjustments that are at or just below inflation. Okay, so we're looking then this year at a 0% increase. Next year, Mm. um, they've applied for six. You will consider it, but it's more likely to be closer to inflation as is 2025. But we've got a ports ports authority Mm. that is in financial crisis. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not able to do its job uh, for many, many reasons, mostly neglect poor management over many years. And there's a Mm -hmm. new management team at Transnet who are trying to turn around around not only the operations of the of the, the struggling train services, but the ports as mm-hmm. well. What will they need to do to get the sort of increases they require to deliver mm-hmm. the service that South African exporters and importers need? Okay. Um, there's a need then to just make a distinction in terms of the institutional architecture uh, in the port system, right? Port Authority is responsible for infrastructure, and then your operators are responsible for superstructure, and you're talking about your TPTs, your bid vest, and so on, right? So this application refer, uh, relates to infrastructure that is necessary, as you said, for vessels to come in, the cargo to be worked, 
and so on. But the cranes and everything that's required to really lift those containers of a vessel onto the into the the, 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 the the cement block and then off uh, the responsibility of TPT. And that is where most of your problems are. And uh, the Port Authority, in terms of the uh, National Ports Act, which governs us, is then responsible to oversee that all terminal operators are efficient in, efficient okay. in the port system, right? So insofar as Port Authority is concerned, what we have approved allows them a revenue of $14.4 billion yeah. compared to the $14.9 billion that they had applied for. Joe, Joe, we're getting a bit tied up in numbers and, and technicalities. All right, here. But, all but the, right. I think the point here is that this isn't, you're not writing blank checks for the, for the, for the mm-hmm. ports. They've got to deliver on services. They've got to show that they've got a, a sustainable plan. And under those circumstances, yeah. you will be more inclined to grant the sort of increases they're requesting um, should, you, um, should you deem the turnaround and the, and the strategies to be in place to be in place that is correct and in this regard specifically talking to the efficiencies or lack of efficiencies in the port system joe mulaudzi thank you very much indeed chief executive at the ports regulator i find that very encouraging the money show with bruce whitfield is brought to you by apsa cib the bank that provides a customized treasury tool to manage fx risk and reporting apsa registered fsp There was a listings boom on the JSE about 15 years ago. A whole host of very successful businesses came to the market, many of them family businesses, through something called Alt-X, the alternative exchange. Some graduated to the main board, and I think most have disappeared. Ellie's, I think, was one of those, if memory serves. And it really should be a business that's booming in our load-shedding crisis. Today, we get the news it's going into business rescue. Duncan McLeod has been watching this business for many years. Duncan is founder and editor at Tech Central. And it feels like Ellie's been hanging on by its fingertips for a long time here, Duncan. Good evening. Good evening, Bruce. Yeah, it does feel like they've been stumbling along for a number of years looking for a deal to save them. And unfortunately, it seems that the bankers have had a look at the proposed transaction that they were interested in doing, which was acquiring a group of companies called Bundu Power, and told them, uh, well, we're not going to fund this. Uh, and yeah, the Bundu Power deal was actually announced a year ago tomorrow, the 1st of February. They went, wow. they, they went through a, a rights issue process which didn't take off. That was cancelled in November. And I guess that means that shareholders just got a little bit tired of uh, a longer way to turn around that didn't seem to materialise. Indeed. And, um, you know, they, they, their, cash, their, their balance sheet has been stressed for a very long time Uh and without that rights issue, they, they simply, I guess, couldn't afford to raise the capital they needed to conclude this transaction, which they felt was um, necessary for the successful continuation of Ellie's holdings and decided then to place it today into voluntary business rescue. But, yeah, it's a sad story. The company's been around since the late 1970s. Uh, the founder, Ellie's uh, Salco, passed away just a couple of years ago. Uh, he founded it in 1979 uh, after extent of working for a company called Aerial King at the time. I don't know if you remember Aerial King. No, I don't. (laughs) And he sold Aerials from the boot of his car, and that's how he got started. And um, the business eventually listed on the JSC. It was very successful for a period, and it rode the the boom of multi-choice and DSTV. They were installing uh, dishes, and um, they they had a very successful period in their history. Um, But they've they've fallen in on, on very hard times over the last uh, decade and uh, unfortunately now 
in the business rescue and it's actually difficult to see whether they're going to come out of this. Yeah, can you pinpoint the, 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 the turning point for the company? Where did they misstep? Was it a series of missteps? Was it a big bet that went wrong? Because I'm, again, in, with so much information and so much news and so many stories mm. around, I'm afraid the detail begins to escape you after a bit, especially when it's crisis after crisis. Yeah, it's, I haven't followed Ellie's um, all that closely, to be honest. But they've, um, you know, they, I think they wrote that that boom of of the, of, of, of DSTV um, when satellite television was all the rage. And I think I think with with the rise of streaming, uh, people don't need satellite dishes on aerials yeah. on their roofs anymore. Sure. And um, that was their bread and butter for for many years. And um, you know, with people moving to to fiber, um, the demand for that traditional television installation uh, businesses has significantly contracted. They have tried to pivot in recent years into the solar business and uh, the Bundu power acquisition would have been an expansion of that. I don't, I don't know how well that business was doing, but they were they were a player in that residential um, rooftop solar market, um, which you'd think is booming in the current environment. It is, but there's also never been more competition in any single sector in South Africa, I don't think. <laughs> uh, everybody with, with, with capacity to carry solar panels in the back of a bucky, I'm exaggerating, of course, appears to be entering into that space. And that becomes very, very difficult to compete in. They lost money in 2022. They lost even more money in 2023. And the most recent set of results are late. I mean, there's just no way for us to be able to ascertain mm. the financial position of this company but clearly it's in a bad enough state for the directors to say business rescue please come and see what you can salvage out of this thing and one of the great tragedies we've learned of business rescue is invariably most companies leave it too late um to be rescued yes. and and business rescue doesn't work a couple come out the other side saa for one of them um but uh, that came with with huge state support of course um and it'd be interesting to see whether or not ellie's can survive this it'd be a pity if it doesn't actually it will be. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure what their staff headcount is at the moment, but uh, it must run into the hundreds at least. So not great news in an economy that's that's not in great shakes and joblessness at, a, at, at, at near record highs. It's, it's not, not good to hear these sort of stories. Duncan McLeod, thank you, the founder and editor at Tech Central tonight. I asked earlier on, I said, which former deputy president of South Africa has landed a job on the board of Mercedes-Benz South Africa? And Pumalelo is calling us from Vaughan Valley this evening. We know it's not Jacob Zuma. He's got other fish to fry. Who is it, Pumalelo? Hi, Bruce. Um, it is Dr. Pumzide Lambo Nuga. Absolutely. Pumzile Mlambo Nuga um, has joined the board. Thank you. Well done to you, Mpumalelo, uh, on, the, on the button in terms of news flow. Uh, we had Tabo Mbeki, who was once a deputy president. It wasn't him. But Jacob Zuma, who was once a deputy president. It wasn't him. Uh, Pumzila Mlambo Nuka. Um, she left local politics, of course, and she really went and cut uh, a very fine path for herself on the global stage via the United Nations. Uh, she built a global reputation, executive director of UN Women. Um, she became an undersecretary general of the United Nations, which is a pretty good title. Um, and she, I think, was very effective at the United Nations. She certainly seemed to be very well regarded uh, back in South Africa and has got that board seat, Mercedes-Benz South Africa. The Money Show. The Markets. To Chris Stewart we go, and the, the currency's had a little bit of a rejuvenation. It feels like it's gone for a mani and a pedi and a facial all at once. Um, are there big global sort of winds blowing in our favour for once, Chris Stewart? Yeah, good evening, Bruce. I mean, let's see it in context. It's still down nearly <laughs> yes. 2% year-to-date against sterling, a percent and a half against the dollar. 
and we're only one month in. So, uh, you know, the last couple of days have been a little bit better. There's been a slightly better feel about slightly better feel about markets. Uh, I think pundits probably looking to a slightly soft employment data set out of the U.S. Uh, this afternoon prior to the all-important Fed meeting this evening and saying that, you know, perhaps U.S. policymakers will start to indicate tonight uh, that there is credible line of sight uh, for declining rates in developed markets. And, and, you know, that would be good for emerging market assets and currencies like the RAND. Uh, so there may be an element of that in there, Bruce. Uh, and we'll see. I mean, all we need is 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 for some growling and, and consternation about uh, the state of the global economy, the fact that, you know, the U.S. economy is still quite strong, inflation is still out of the bounds, uh, and putting the uh, rate cut firmly into the second half of calendar 2024 and all of that can reverse. So yeah. I think it's quite quite dependent on what we hear tonight. And, you know, we started the year uh, with, uh, you know, market consensus expecting something like a 70% odd chance of the first rate cut in the U.S. coming as early as March. Mm -hmm. That has uh, disappeared into thin air over the last couple of weeks. And, you know, that likelihood has now dropped as low as 30%. And I guess if that's higher than 30% tomorrow, then the RAND carries on going. and. You know, if it's if it's lower than thirty percent tomorrow, then the rand probably sells off a bit. Yeah. that kind of market at the moment. Uh, absolutely, and it's uh, it's nice to have that perspective from you, Chris. And I, I just look at all the job cuts that are happening across some really well known American companies. UPS today announced uh, uh, twelve thousand job cuts. We saw um, also the the PayPal guys today announce more than a thousand job cuts, and that's on top of the many thousands across other tech firms and things in the United States. And you get a sense that not all is fabulous. I mean, the the economy is growing. IMF has upgraded the growth forecast for the U.S. and all sorts of other things. But on the ground, things are pretty tough, um, even in uh, what is the world's most stable economy at the moment. Um, Our property shares have been quite buoyant recently, relative to, of course, the last five years. Hyprop came out with an update today. Are we seeing any sort of opportunities in that property sector yet? Yeah, I mean, the property sector, you know, let's not forget that the market tends to look forward and the property sector's had quite a good crack of late. And that's been, you know, as the market has discounted the worst uh, being over for the property sector, both in terms of the rates environment and indeed uh, in terms of what's physically going on on the ground. And, you know, high prop giving, you know, outside of a, of a noisy African portfolio in Ghana due to, you know, vacancies and currency, you know, extreme currency movements year on year, which complicates that set of numbers. If you look at the, the SA business, it does appear as though, uh, you know, footfall and trade is normalizing. It's not spectacular, but certainly getting a little better. That'll be good for their tenants. And as a result of that, that'll be good for their tenants' ability uh, to pay uh, their rent, which obviously Hyprop will be glad to see. Uh, what also I thought was interesting is if you look at the November versus December trade data uh, that they provided, it definitely supports the notion uh, that Black Friday was something of a damn squib in uh, 2023. Uh, you know, there was a high base effect. Everyone meant mad in 2022, uh, spent like crazy on Black Friday, which I think happened to coincide with payday in 2022. Uh, I think people becoming a little bit more astute. Uh, and where in 2022, uh, Black Friday brought forward a lot of the spend that would have happened in December and put it in November, creating a very high base and creating some fairly uh, scary statistics 
when we saw the December on, sorry, the November 2023 on the November 2022 numbers, it looked like retail was falling off a cliff. It does look as though uh, there was a, a recovery in spend in December. The December numbers looking more robust. And I think that's by and large been supported uh, by the trading updates we've seen out of the retailers so far, which haven't been good, no. uh, but also they haven't been as terrible as expected. And, you know, you look at stocks like Mr. Price, uh, they've got going quite nicely on the back of what was a an okay but not terrible, you know, uh, not spectacular but not terrible trading update. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we've got the platinum sector, which is starting to deliver results and uh, bring updates through. And we've had platinum group metals prices uh, plummet since the huge spike we saw immediately after in the short supply squeeze of after post COVID as mines were opening up again. And it's fascinating to see the the massive decline in the value of the platinum companies. Are they beginning to find their feet again? What does the Impala update tell you? Yeah, I mean, it's been a, a woeful environment uh, for for platinum companies that, you know, they've had, you know, dollar-based uh, cost inflation uh, coming through. They've had a weak commodity price, and they've also had some, you know, some, some operational and, and in some cases tragic operational uh, issues that have happened over the last few months. Um, so Impala's trading update came out today. They talked to uh, production um, being you know, pretty much in line with expectations, uh, costs being reasonable. So, you know, all of that was quite pleasing. Uh, they've had some disruptions uh, on the smelting side, so their refined production under a little bit of pressure. Um, and I'm surprisingly guiding that earnings will be down more than 20% now. Most uh, people in the market not looking for anything much by way of earnings uh, from Impala Platinum in the first half of their financial year. Remember, they've got a June year end. So no no information at all in the fact that earnings will be down more than 20%. But from an operational point of view, most of it looks okay. I've just flagged that the cash balance uh, at year end looks to me at about 5 billion rand, was probably about 10 billion light of uh, where I think most uh, analysts in the market were looking for. So some explanation required as to why uh, cash levels were as low as they were, but outside of that, uh, a reasonable uh, trading update from a production point of view. Chris Stewart, a portfolio manager at 91. How are you feeling about the state of the economy and your household finances? Well, there's a new study out today from HSBC Global Research, which has tapped into 1,700 respondents, and they did it in the second week of this year. And they found most are really quite downbeat. Not surprising, cost of living, inflation, and of course, load shedding. Consumers are, 43% of, uh, of respondents said they are more pessimistic about the economic outlook and the trend is negative. And they say um, to the, the researchers keep a lid on consumer spending, which uh, is expected to increase, but only slightly. The, the researchers are seeing a slight increase in consumer spending this year, but not enough to significantly support South Africa's retail sector. But there's a little caveat to this, and this is most interesting, I think. Nearly half of the survey respondents say, look, it's really rough, it's really tough, but... We do anticipate that during 2024, there'll be an improvement in discretionary income. Interest rates will start to decline. And that's going to, there's something that's going to worry the Reserve Bank here because wage expectations are still high. 61% of respondents to this HSBC survey say they're expecting increases of 5% and more this year. The Reserve Bank wants our expectations on wage increases to be a bit more muted. 702. Bruce is on the money show.
This is The Money Show. I am Bruce Whitfield and there's nice people at EPSA CIB, the bank that provides customised treasury tools to manage foreign exchange risk and reporting is proud to bring you The Money Show. EPSA is a registered FSP. Well, on the next Money Show, portfolio manager at Rand Swiss, Viv Govender will be headmaster of the investment school. Strategies to make sure that you make money from the markets. Pavlo with small business and of course all of the big money stories of the day and there's so much going on as the year finally kicks in in the second month after the long holidays of December and most of January, frankly. Next time on The Money Show. Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. One shouldn't laugh, but a court has ruled in the United States that Elon Musk's 2018 pay deal with Tesla, the electric vehicle company that he founded, was unfathomable. Unfathomable, they said. A judge in the U.S. state of Delaware saying he's more than one trillion pay packet. Yes, you heard it right. One trillion rand pay packet should be cancelled. Judgment followed a lawsuit from a shareholder who said, hold on a second, that is an overpayment. Even Elon. And Judge Kathleen McCormack said that Tesla directors who negotiated the pay package were perhaps starry-eyed due to Musk's superstar appeal and they didn't fully inform shareholders. So they knew they were up to, uh, up to no good on that particular front. Uh, it's wonderful to see innovation taking place, and it's wonderful to see that there is a huge amount of really good work happening in supplementing and, in some cases, replacing the work of ESCOM, which has let us down really, really badly. And we're going to solve, I think, a multiplicity of our problems through collaboration in an open and hopefully non-exploitative sort of way. Saw the unveiling today of a business called Lyra Energy, and it is, they're describing it as a groundbreaking partnership that will change South Africa's energy landscape. It involves Skatec, Stadabank, and Stanlib. Andy Lowe speaks on behalf of Stanlib and joins us on the line from London this evening. Um, just how revolutionary is this deal, the structure, Andy? How's it going to be different from everything else we're seeing in the alternative energy environment? Mm. Evening, Bruce. It's it's an interesting structure. Um, there are similar structures out there. What we tried to do when we put this structure together was look at what was in the market and try and improve upon it. Um, what we're trying to do is we're bringing together three unique organizations, Standlib, Scartech, and Standard Bank, and taking the best from all of those institutions to try and create um, a low-risk private energy platform that can try and service some of the unserviced market that exists in South Africa. Okay, you're going to have to explain to me then, what did you call it? A low-risk energy platform. Um, firstly, why low-risk? Uh, we know energy. What is platform in this particular context? So, Bruce, we've had a liberalization of the energy markets in South Africa over the last 24 months, and that's created an opportunity for South African businesses to provide services to corporate and industrial uh, South African companies that they previously couldn't provide. What I mean by that is this platform called Lyra Energy is going to build, own, and operate multiple renewable energy projects and sell that through Eskin's transmission network. Okay. So wheel that energy from the plants to corporate users scattered throughout South Africa. The low risk part of it is the three entities who've created Lyra and will build uh, Lyra out in, in the market. The three entities put together all the requisite um, component parts required 
uh, to make it a, a low execution risk for corporate SA to partner with us to provide their energy requirements. Is the biggest risk here not that you can't set it up, not that you can't do it, not that there isn't plenty of technology and availability and space and, and will to create and generate the energy, but the ESCOM transmission network, which, as we know, is not what it should be. Is the timing of this deal on the assumption that by the time you're ready to supply the electricity to the corporates, that the transmission network will be adequate? Bruce, no. So through Stanlib, we're invested in more than 20 utility-scale renewable energy projects in South Africa. And our experience of owning and managing those projects in the last 10 years is that the existing grid infrastructure in South Africa is, is, is excellent. Okay. The grid uptime is more than 99%. Um, the new grid required in South Africa is extensive. Um, and that's, you know, that's 10 years in the making. That will be for the next generation of projects. For the immediate build-out of Lara Energy, we have more than sufficient grid capacity in South Africa. Fantastic. Thank you, Andy Lowe, who speaks on behalf of infrastructure investments for Stanlib. And I just love the fact that we've got these very, very highly capable um, sort of propeller heads, with respect, uh, people who are saying, here's the problem, how do we solve it? And it's not, you can't flick a switch, literally, and solve the problem overnight. But these are people who are taking a long-term view that ESCOM is simply not going to be able to, in its current state, uh, deliver the kind of electricity we're going to need into the future. So we're making a plan on that particular front. Thank you, Andy Lowe. You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Tourism numbers around the world are finally recovering and it certainly looks like the Western Cape has had a bumper and continues to enjoy a bumper season and uh, the mining in Darwin next week is going to help in terms of business travel and that happens with massive restaurant bookings and big booze bills and expensive hotels and all of those good things um, that occur there. Well, according to the United Nations World Tourism Organization, which publishes the World Tourism Barometer, it shows that last year there were 1.3 billion tourist arrivals around the world. So that's one in eight, little more than one in eight people in the world traveled last year on average and went to another country. Uh, It means that global tourism is not fully recovered to pre-pandemic levels. It's around 88% of what it was in 2019. I was wondering just what it's like in South Africa. CEO at the Tourism Business Council of South Africa is Chifiwa Chivangwa. We last spoke in the dark days of the pandemic and all the wheels on tourism. Chifiwa were coming off terribly. And the tourism industry is emerging from this crisis, if not in superhero shape, certainly in better shape than it was two years ago. How is the recovery taking place here? Uh, good evening, Bruce, and thank you for having me. Uh, the recovery is... Uh it's looking good, uh, you know, obviously compared to the previous year, uh, which is 2022. Uh, and we're talking about the numbers here now up to the end of December 2023. That's what I'm mentioning 2022. And also 2021 and 2020. So we're looking good from that perspective. It shows that there is a robust recovery from the arrival figures, uh, from, uh, you know, Just as, as he's getting to the juicy bits. Uh, producers, I'm not sure why Chifiwa has disappeared. Um, can we just try him very briefly? Oh, that, he was back, I think. Let's try again. Chifiwa, sorry. You were about to tell us what the numbers were doing? No. We're being let down by the tech. Uh, but my producers will 
try and get hold of him. Uh, what, he's, he's back, is he? Oh, excellent. Because we get hand signals. That's, that's how you communicate in the 21st century. <laughs> Um, Javiwa, sorry, we were rudely interrupted by technology. Um, take, take me through what, what the state is of tourism. Are we at that 88% level? Are we doing better? Well, we are doing better, uh, but uh, the best benchmark for us is 2019 figures. Uh, but when we look at all the markets that are key to us, uh, you know, if you look at the numbers of 2023 versus 2019, of course, we are not there yet from the arrival figures point of view. Uh, Africa, we are in minus 3%. America is, I think, about minus 10. Uh, if you look at Europe, about 6% minus. Uh, and if you look at the whole globally, you know, we are on average of minus 12%. So from arrivals point of view versus 2019, we are still behind. However, if you look at the years of COVID, our recovery has been robust. Uh, and we are looking at, uh, you know, double, you know, figure percentages in terms of recovery. But we need to keep in mind that 2019 was our normal year. Uh, we are not there yet from the arrival figures point of view. Uh, things are certainly looking up this year. The exchange rate is working in favor of many foreign visitors and therefore many providers of services to, to international visitors. Um, it's still a very expensive place and more expensive than it was in 2019 to travel to. And there's less competition on the air routes than there was in 2019. And I wonder if that's a bit of a hindrance to our full recovery uh, for this year and beyond is that it's become an even more expensive place to travel to by virtue of the fact that there are fewer airlines doing doing the journey? Well, yeah, there, there are fewer airlines doing the journey to South Africa. And when we analyze the speed capacity, uh, we are still nowhere close to the capacity that we used to have, you know, in 2019. So we need more airlines, you know, having direct uh, flights into South Africa, especially from the markets that we believe there's growth. If you look at India, we believe that there's a growth that we can get from there. China, we need more additional capacity from that point of view. Uh, we are connected to Australia. And, uh, of course, uh, the U.S. is doing very, very well. And we need uh, more connectivity uh, you know, into Johannesburg from that, from that point of view. So if we get that right, we should get more tourists coming to the country. But more importantly, we are in a more competitive world. There are many countries that have seen tourism uh, as a low-hanging fruit, and they are doing their marketing aggressively overseas uh, to try to attract as many people as possible. We need to do the same or even more so that we can get as many tourists as possible. So destination marketing is going to be key. And also unlocking the challenges that you can unlock from the visa regime point of view. Don't stop me. And, and all those things. <laughs> we can unlock that alone. We, we have seen this uh-huh. when we, we, we waived the visa for, for, for Kenya. The numbers are flying. We did now for, for Ghana. The numbers are starting to fly. We need to do so for other markets so that we can have more people coming to the country Absolutely. and creating more jobs. And again, more people come to the country, more airlines will fly, prices hopefully come down, more people come, etc., etc., and the jobs come as well. Thank you very much uh, to Tsufiwa Tivangwa, the Chief Executive at the Tourist, uh, Tourism Business Council of South Africa this evening. Encouraging signs, not out of the, uh, the woods yet in terms of the numbers, and we should be far further ahead than we were in 2019, but the recovery is taking place around the world. I saw a very, very brief announcement a moment or six ago saying the APSA Group expanding into China. It's got a new office. Charles Russon is the chief executive of APSA Corporate and Investment Bank. Um, This is a CIB expansion, I take it, Charles, not an APSA Group expansion. This is your corporate investment banking capability moving into the Chinese market physically for the first time. 
Yeah, good evening, Bruce, and uh, good to chat to you again and evening to your listeners. Yeah, exactly right. Um, <clears throat> this is about our corporate investment bank. Um, it's it's about our our strategy of connecting our business here in Africa. And remember, we want to be a, a leading pan-African business connecting our clients across the continent. The corridors around the world. So, yeah, for us, this is... Uh, this is Sorry, Charles, your cell phone then is deciding to cause havoc with us. So my producers, they've got like fairy dust. They've got magic dust, which they have in what we call the call screening booth. And they then scatter it over the phone when the line goes funny. And somehow magically um, the line improves. But that the magic dust doesn't appear to be working. Are we phoning him back? No hand signals yet. Uh, no hand signals yet. I mentioned with Chris Stewart a moment ago that more global companies are cutting jobs and this time PayPal is doing it. PayPal is cutting jobs in a big way um, and it says it's going to cut 2,500 jobs or 9% of its global workforce. Uh, a year ago, did a similar thing. Uh, the chief executive, Alex Chris, uh, told staff it's time to right-size the company. Also saying that, you know what, actually come into the office. Come into the office and it's going to be harder for you to hold on to your job if you're not in the office. And then uh, the parcel delivery service of UPS is cutting 12,000 jobs. Instead, going to be investing more in artificial intelligence and is saying it's got to become more efficient. And uh, also, I mean, yeah, so she's called, the CEO of, uh, of UPS is calling on staff to come back to the office, not the CEO, I beg your pardon, of PayPal, but certainly pressure building in UK in US companies. Charles Russon, sorry about that. We were rudely interrupted by telecommunications. Uh, but you explained to us the need for right now selling, uh, setting up that capability in China um, and really amplifying the opportunities of trade networks between the African continent where you have a strong presence and Asia, particularly China. Absolutely right, Bruce. And, you know, we've always said in terms of our strategy, the importance of these corridors, uh, you know, Africa and South Africa as part of that, we, we don't sit isolated from the rest of the world. So our, our partners need to to uh, do activity, they need to trade, they need to have their partners ar- around the globe. Um, and we want to be part of facilitating that business into Africa in order that Africa ultimately grows. How, how big a presence are you looking at? Are you sending one person with hand luggage and a laptop or are you making a bigger commitment? Uh, a little bit more than that. I mean, Bruce, at the end of the day, yeah, we won't have a balance sheet there. This no. is this is a, an advisory business, and this is to enable us to facilitate deal trade, and connect, yeah. facilitate trade and business. Mm. So, yeah, we'll probably be an office of about ten people to start off with, as as we look to grow this and as we look to cement our relationships with clients there. Um, is it going to be a, an office staffed by Africans looking to do intra, intra sort of Africa-Asia trade or are you going to be employing local people there and bringing them into the business here? How is that going to work? Yeah, I think that's part of the secret, Bruce, that you know, ultimately we want a bit of both. Yeah. Um, we have to have people who fully understand our business, our capabilities, and, and have the connections into APSA to get things done for our clients. But at the same time, we need to have local knowledge in China that can connect with the clients and the head offices of their respective organizations in China and in Beijing. So, yeah, it's going to be a combination of both. Charles Russon, Chief Executive at APSA CIB. Thank you very much for joining us on The Money Show this evening. Maki Malapo now standing by with Eyewitness News at 7 o'clock. 
The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk on 92.7 and 106 FM. APSA CIB, the bank that provides a customized treasury tool to manage FX risk and reporting, is proud to bring you The Money Show. APSA is a registered FSP. Well, coming up in this half hour, we're going to chat to Jabu Zwane, who's a mindset development specialist. Uh, we'll get into the right mindset. We're talking side hustles. Done a survey on LinkedIn recently on side hustles and the, the way in which people treat side hustles as employers. Do you openly encourage your teams to have a side hustle? Um, if, some, if you find out that somebody's got a side hustle and they didn't tell you, do you get grumpy about it? Have you fired somebody for having a side hustle because they didn't discuss it with you? What is your attitude toward the side hustle? Personally, I think everybody should have a side hustle. Um, and a side hustle is an absolutely pivotal tool because it keeps people occupied, engaged. Um, it offers them alternatives. And you, if you're insecure about them having alternatives, you just need to try a bit harder. And I, yeah, I'm curious as to your attitude towards side hustles in your business. Then Wendy Nola um, uh, is going to be talking to us about the role of the broker in the relationship between you and your insurer. And it's a, there's been a really interesting case recently about the way in which brokers and these intermediaries but let's use the term broker because it upsets brokers um uh, and we will talk about that with wendy nola this evening and then at half past seven as promised we've got jonathan oppenheimer joining us sadly not in person it's a pity but he's an international man of mystery is jonathan oppenheimer uh, and so we'll catch up to him via the marvels of modern technology but uh, i'll explain why we're talking to him coming up later on other than he's the fact that he's jonathan oppenheimer he has interesting tales to tell as well and he'll share those with us this evening on the money show the money show business unusual so if you have a side hustle tell us about your side hustle does your employer know that you've got a side hustle does your employer care does your employer even encourage it and if you are the employer do you know do you care do you encourage it i believe as i said everyone should have a side hustle jabu zwane the mindset development specialist clearly you believe this too jabu that we should all be hustling and be creative and developing our skills and talents beyond um, the time we spend at the office good evening bruce Uh, thank you so much for having me absolutely i totally believe in the importance of topping up the current or income that has fallen behind so much in South Africa. I mean, it's uh, the stats are in. We are already what in what I call the retrenchment apocalypse. January has been full of a lot of retrenchments. Mm-hmm. And um, if we look at the salaries and in terms of how they've been improving or increasing in the last 20 years, they have fallen way behind the basket of goods, house prices, car prices. So undoubtedly, We've got to find a way to earn extra income. Uh, should we not be focusing on our, te- our attention on climbing the, the greasy corporate ladder? Should we not be saying, okay, fine, my current job doesn't pay me what I need to come out. I need to develop my skills. I can advance my corporate career. Why be distracted by the side hustle? And I'm paying devil's advocate here, Jabu. But why be distracted by the side hustle? Yes. I should rather be committing blood, sweat, tears and toil to my employer so they recognize my brilliance and my usefulness and advance my career um, aspirations and pay me as I rise up the corporate ladder. 
That would actually be ideal. The only challenge is that we're looking at a GDP that has pretty much been stagnant for the last five years. So the jobs are not there. So even if you were to work your butt off, let's say, trying to get up that ladder, <laughs> the question is that how many spaces are there on that ladder? The reality is that there aren't that many spaces. And a big part of one of the, of why we're not, as a country, economically expanding as much is because, I suppose, I believe that it's because of the fact that there isn't that many people uh, active in that space of uh, entrepreneurship and side hustles. That's because it's hard. It's much harder than having a job starting your own thing. Undoubtedly it is. And what I like is that, I mean, these days, there are many side hustles that have more to do with your skills. There are people who can do tutoring, people who can do teaching online. There are things like, uh, you know, I've been doing affiliate marketing. There are many different options that a person can be able to sort of, you know, employ without necessarily having to be a businessman. That doesn't require for you to have, uh, you know, your books and all of that in a row. It's a matter of just repurposing some of your skills at the moment and be able to generate some income from it. I remember I went to, I was very privileged to go to um, Omaha in Nebraska to go and see Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett. It was a while back, wow. I think 2017. It was fantastic. But the thing that struck me about the side hustle culture there, uh, and it's two Uber stories, and I think Uber is one of the things you say, well, you know, if you've got a car and you've got time, then you know, do a couple of hours of Ubering. You don't have to turn it into a full-time job. You don't have to do it all day. But the one Uber driver um, was a guy who was on his lunch break and he had a packet of chips, a drink, and a sandwich on the seat next to him. And he was using his lunch break to drive us around. Um, and uh, he, he said, oh, you're from South Africa. Oh, I do coding for MTN. And this is this guy working in Omaha, Nebraska, wow. who at the time was doing coding for MTN. And it was his lunch break. And instead of sitting at his desk having lunch, he was getting a drive around, earning a little bit of cash. And then he'd go back to his office on time to carry on his day job. The other one, and this was a little bit more scary, was a university professor on a Sunday morning. Um, I needed to get from the hotel back to the airport to fly Atlanta and then back to Joburg. And um, he was saying, well, his son's in retail, his wife's in retail, uh, his son was laid off and his wife's job looked precarious. So in anticipation of her maybe losing her, her job, he was making money on the side driving Ubers on the weekend. Um, again, not interfering mm. with his academic work, but being proactive and saying there are these opportunities to earn extra money. And rather than sitting at home saying, geez, there's no jobs and no opportunity, actually taking his control of, of his fate and that's what this is all about it is definitely all about that and you are absolutely right and that was that was the exact experience that i had when i was in the usa i was stuck there during COVID, from the march of 2020 to about november and i was pleasantly surprised at how many people actually have multiple jobs i mean if you think about it one of the other advantages of being a south african with a more palatable accent for the most international markets the opportunities for being a virtual assistant, the opportunities for being a call center agent, the opportunities, of course, because of the access to the internet by and large of, uh, you know, drop shipping. And I think, as you've, as you've said about this gentleman as well, we also have opportunities here in South Africa for Bolt and for, for, for Ubering. I mean, there's so much more that one has to, you know, explore and see what is well within 
your ability and access to do because waiting around hoping for the government and the for the economy to turn around that might be quite a long turn and what no. happens in that time to and governments don't turn around economies people turn around economies creative people innovative exactly. people and they operate within the environment and they say right well there's a gap there's a gap there's a gap we'll drive a wedge into it and i just uh, yeah I, I worry that a lot of people just you know would rather sit with their friends and complain about the situation rather than saying Friends, I'll see you on the weekend when I've got spare cash. Cheers. Um, and go out uh, and, and make a plan. And, uh, you know, it's open. There are many options open if you apply your mind to it. You ran a poll, I think, on LinkedIn yes. about side hustles. What did your, your poll tell you? The poll said uh, 83% of the people, we've got about almost 100 votes that came through, 83% of the people had said absolutely, you know, employers have got to consider that. About 4% said no. Another 3% said uh, we're not even thinking about it or I'm not mm. even sure. So overwhelmingly, many people also have come through and put on comments, of course, they were concerned of uh, split operational capacity and how that is going to in turn impact not only the work at ho- the work quality, but also mental health as far as availability for family, for many other different things. And those are quite valid. What that tells me is that then there's a need for us to have a conversation around how do we do this in a way that will ensure that we've got a plan and we don't get caught by surprise. We don't want to have a mental health breakdown down the line. No, but again, it comes down to if a family or a family unit is struggling, a family has to have a grown-up conversation and navigate this together. This isn't about a single breadwinner who goes out to do a nine-to-five job who comes home to an unhappy family because there's not enough money in the in the home, yet they arrive home and then they're expected to you know do the normal household chores and stuff. I think you can renegotiate the family circumstance and say, look, I'm going to be out for three hours, three nights a week to do some Ubering or waitering or whatever it might be that I feel I'm capable of doing. And that's going to help alleviate this problem. It's not going to happen forever. This is not, you know, this is not a forever side hustle. There are the other people who, you know, instead of sitting at home, uh, you know, Warren Ingram's uh, mother-in-law, for example, when we challenged people into a side Mm -hmm. hustle about seven or eight years ago, she started a side hustle cooking Italian food and would do frozen meals oh, wow. for people and was incredibly popular. Um, and she eventually got tired of it, but it supplemented her income for, I think, five or six years. And she created this, sparked mm-hmm. by Warren Ingram, and uh, who said, why did you try this? You've always talked about it. Just do it. Uh, and it's, it, it's this thing about not sort of just feeling miserable for the sake of it. But thank you, uh, Jabu Zwane, the Mindset Development Specialist this evening. Jabu Zwane, on the whole notion of the side hustle, and the fact that employers, you know, you, you don't want people being exhausted to the point where they're coming to their salary job and not being productive and useful because that's not acceptable. Um, it, it, but by no means can you compromise the bread and butter. But at the same time, if you really think about it and how many, t- how many hours you spend on your phone, how many hours you spend, I don't know, watching Netflix, how many hours you spend staring at the ceiling or whatever it is, you can take some of that time and apply it to productive income generating tools. Hope that helped. Thank you, Job. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB, the bank that provides a customized treasury tool to manage FX risk and reporting. APSA is a registered FSP. The Money Show. Consumer Ninja.
Katima Ninja, Wendy Nola with us this evening. And Wendy, it's all about the broker. Some people get very cross about being called brokers. They're either financial planners or they are, um, you know, advisors. But, I mean, our traditional view of the broker is somebody who who turns up and sells you an insurance policy or something like that. So at its most basic level. um, And and sometimes they work for a big institution, so they're a tied agent, and their job is to make sure that, you know, you buy lots of policies from some or old mutual or bright rock or whomever it might be uh, or they are so-called independent advisors and they may have three or four policy options available to you is there responsibility to sell you a policy and then to disappear and not bother you again what is the job of the broker and, no. and, and how is that defined <laughs> okay so they as it as as the phase onward, phase being the financial advisory and intermediary services onward. So that's what a broker is. That's the, the fancy industry name. They're financial advisors. They are the intermediary intermediary between the customer, the policyholder, and and the insurer. Um, so the phase onward exists to deal with cases where these advisors have, have uh, been seen to or accused of be, have fallen short of their duties. And as a result, the consumer has suffered a loss, and the um, the ombudsman is, is advocate John Simpson. And in a ruling recently um, that he made recently, he said brokers are expected to do a lot more than be a mere conduit or post box for their clients' transactions with insurers. He says their duties and responsibilities extend far, far beyond that. And of course, if they don't take that on board. Um, they could be made to pay for losses suffered by their clients as a direct result of their failure to to meet their responsibilities. And and there's a lovely case study that we could talk about um, where this was found to have happened. So um, <laughs> uh, five years ago, a Brits-based doctor by the name of Luzanne de Beer she had her Land Cruiser stolen from outside uh, her practice and she lodged a 311,000 rand claim with her insurer, Quicksure, underwritten by Old Mutual via her broker on the grounds that um, it well, well, the claim was rejected by the insurer on the grounds that she had failed to have a specific high-tech tracking device installed in it, which was um, named in or described in the terms and conditions of the policy as being, you know, the the, the the theft cover, hijacking cover was conditional upon this device or type of device being installed. Um, so she was obviously unhappy. She's now 311,000 rand out of pocket. She lodged a complaint with the ombudsman for short-term insurance. They started with the insurer looking only at um, the uh, obviously policy wording. Um, and then she filed a complaint against her broker with the phase on board, saying the broker didn't tell her that Quicksure um, made installing that, that high-tech tracking system in her Land Cruiser a condition uh, of cover. Pause here for a the moment, broker, Wendy. Sorry, Wendy, pause for yes. a moment. So, I mean, when you, sign, when you agree to an insurance product, you sign documents. And I know that none of us ever read those documents with the diligence that perhaps we should. And even if we do, we and they're written in plain English, we don't fully always understand the implications of each and every single clause. And that's where lots of people become unstuck. Had this been a recent development, sure. a, a change in the policy document that she had signed previously? 
No, it was, um, as far as I am aware, it was um, a condition when she acquired the Land Cruiser, it was this uh, special, you know, more high tech, early, early warning, whatever tracking system um, is a condition applied um, by some insurers for high end vehicles. Because okay. that they as presumably are, are more targeted, I would imagine, sure. and that was uh, they applied that to this particular vehicle. Um, a lot of people say one of the advantages of going through a broker is that they deal with all this stuff. You don't have to go through all the terms and conditions. You know they'll pick out the stuff that can trip you up. That is why, right? why otherwise, game, otherwise buy insurance yeah. off the internet. Buy it off an app. If you want advice, you go for advice. It's an advice-led business. Absolutely. Got you. Okay. Right. So, um, yeah, she'd bought the Land Cruiser in, in 2016, February 2016, added it to the policy through the broker, when the car, when the, the SUV was stolen two years and some months later in July 2018, um, this is where the trouble happened because the claim was denied and the broker in turn uh, denied liability. Uh, the broker, incidentally, um, was uh, Barty Jacobs Insurance Brokers, also in Brits. The company uh, denied uh, liability, saying that the beer. The client had signed the policy documents after it was explained to her that a satellite early warning device, that's what it is, a satellite mm-hmm. early warning device had to be fitted. And she signed without giving attention to the contract and the accompanying disclosure document. But the phase on board, uh, John Simpson was having none of it. In his determination, he said that an early warning satellite tracking device was not a normal or usual requirement in a policy for theft cover on you know, on all vehicles, generally only being applied, as I said, to certain vehicles, depending on their value and so-called exceptional risk factors. Um, so the broker claimed that this requirement had been discussed with, with his client, yes. Debeer, but but Simpson said, actually, <laughs> you're saying that, but you haven't produced any evidence. There's no record of advice reflecting this discussion with a complainant regarding the satellite tracking device, he no. said. No evidence what is the, of what the is broker the, following up with a complaint. What is the yeah. rec- what is the record of advice? Because there is a policy document, and that's in black and white. That is indisputable. You then have the intermediary. You have the, the the person selling the policy on behalf of the company. They have a conversation, and in that conversation, I may very well have forgotten that they mentioned the need for the device. How do they prove that they did in the conversation say that there was mention? Of the device, because what's what's this this record that you speak of? Well, I suppose it would be uh, anything. I don't think it's a formalized thing, but a, a broker would certainly. If I was a broker, I would send an email saying just to confirm we you have about to have this. this done. Yeah, follow up. You know, have have you had it done? Please, please be aware that if you haven't, you're at risk. You'd have, you're paying this premium, but you're not going to have cover. That kind of thing. I mean, yeah. email is a, is a classic way to to provide. That record. I always tell people if it's a if you have a phone conversation with someone, um, follow it up by saying, as we said in the phone in the 100%. conversation, so there's a, a record of it, right? So, yeah, um, all that he all the broker could 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 uh, provide the ombuds office with was a general letter that was sent out to his clients and the policy policy schedule sent to De Beer at the inception of the policy. Um, the general code of conduct for 
brokers, authorized financial services providers, places a duty on them to disclose material terms of the contract, which is what I said earlier. That's, you know, that's what you as a client are relying on. And there was no evidence that this was ever done. Um, and that's where this quote comes from that I, I, I shared at, when we started this conversation was, the respondent appears to regard itself as a mere conduit or postbox for the complainant's transaction with the insurer. But as per the code, its duties and responsibilities extend far beyond that. Um, and as an expert in the field, the broker was expected to provide all the information and assistance necessary to ensure that the client, in this case, to be was well advised and informed regarding a special condition such as the early warning satellite tracking device. A, it's unusual, and B, it's so material that if your car gets stolen or, or hijacked, you're not going to have any cover. Um, and that's not all. Um, the Ombud said a broker would also be expected to follow up regularly to check whether the device was installed and ask the client to send proof of the installation to the insurer. Sending a general letter to its client and the policy schedule to the complainant does not satisfy the requirements of the code. And he said if if, if um, Barty Jacobs Insurance Brokers had complied with its duties, there was a high probability that um, this client, Dr. De Beer, would have installed the device and her claim would have been successful. Um, and so he ordered the broker to fork out that 301,000 rand. The total claim was 311 something, but um, it, there was an excess that of 11,000 or 10,000 that yeah. came off. So the broker must now pay just over 300,000 rand plus interest at a rate of 11.75% per annum oh. from the date of the determination until the date of payment. So quite an important ruling. It is. Um, quite an eye-opener for brokers who perhaps are just uh, being that post box rather than, t you know, taking their, their um, duties very seriously, especially with the, these very unusual but very important material clauses. So, so yeah, I mean, advice for consumers is don't trust that your broker is telling you everything you really need to know. Check the policy wordings and exclusions yourself. And if you do think that you've been financially prejudiced because of a broker's failure to do their duties, do right by you, um, you can lodge a complaint with the phase on board. It's a free service. Uh, they deliberate. You might go in your favor. It might not. But I think it's all these ombudsman's uh, officers perform a really important role. Yeah, and please don't waste the office uh, the time with the office of the ombud. If you ignore the uh, the advice, the instruction, call it what you like of the broker, please don't complain that they didn't do it. Of because course, you, yes. you will be exposed. These people have seen charlatans and crooks and all kinds of chances from every angle. Um, they're highly experienced people um, and they have enormous authority to make an instruction such as the one that has been ordered in this particular case, where the broker has to pay out the claim because it's not the insurer's fault. Now, I wonder whether the insurer then changes its relationship with that particular broker because it's saying, hold on a second, but if you're not telling our customers what they need to know, um, we're not going to allow you to sell our policies. I, I wonder if that if it goes that far. That's I would. I have no idea, but I'll certainly try and find out. Interesting one. I'll speak to my my contacts in the industry and get their views on that. Thank you very much, as always. Our consumer ninja, Wendy Nola. What a wonderful insight this evening on the importance of advice, firstly. And I'm a big believer in advice um, because you can easily make a mistake if you simply tick a box on a, 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 in, in an automated process. Um, and the, the importance also of reading the documents and understanding what your responsibilities are. 
absolutely pivotal. After Eyewitness News now at half past seven with Mikey Malapo, we'll be joined by Jonathan Oppenheimer, the fourth in a dynasty of Oppenheimers who have been... The Money Show. Shapeshifters. Shapeshifters brought to you by Bidvest Bank. Bidvest Bank, built for your business. Well, I was privileged last year to be part of a lineup of amazing speakers at the inaugural SA Future Trust Gathering at Gallagher Estate. It was a, a multi-day event. It brought together the owners of small businesses to what really was a wonderful, uplifting and inspiring gathering. It was all done with the backing of the Oppenheimer family, whose um, scion in Africa, Ernest, arrived in the country in the early 1900s as a diamond trader. He ended up creating not only Anglo-American, but also ended up controlling De Beers. And De Beers dominated the global diamond industry through the 20th century. And then, of course, uh, Harry Oppenheimer took over the business, succeeded by Nicky Oppenheimer, who then oversaw the family's sale of the resources businesses to Anglo-American. And Jonathan Oppenheimer is with me now. Effectively, Jonathan, you're Oppenheimer number four. Your great-grandfather Ernest started it. Harry grew it exponentially. Your dad chaired De Beers for many years. And then the last time I spoke to him, uh, your dad, that is, and he said, it's up to Jonathan now. It's quite a big responsibility, isn't it? Uh, Bruce, you just put me really properly in my box. Yeah, huge responsibility. No, but it is. I mean, you know, again, we, we, there is a perception, I suppose, when one looks at, at the, the lives of people who are born into privilege and you say, oh, wouldn't that be nice? Um, and it comes with, with massive shackles um, and, and the responsibility for future generations of Oppenheimers. Not only that, but I think you were brought up, as I can piece it together, in a household that said you're not only responsible for the next five generations of Oppenheimers, but you're also gener- responsible for a for a broader community. And I mean, I remember chatting to you during the pandemic and you were saying, well, our family and um, uh, and your dad, your aunt, Mary Slack, you know, each committing a billion rand into, into the fund to help South Africa through the crisis. And there's a deep responsibility, I think, bred into you or beaten into you or encouraged within you uh, to have a bigger responsibility than just yourselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> You know, you're opening a, a conversation which could go on for years, but the, the essence of it is the idea of, of with great privilege comes an equivalent level of, of ob- obligation to, to ensure the environment that you're in benefits from your investments and, and, and your endeavors. And, you know, my, my great-grandfather, Ernest, I think said it best in, in 1954 when he said, of Anglo-American, but at the time he was running it, uh, <clears throat> we're here in we're here to make a profit because without making a profit, uh, nothing is sustainable. But we're here to make a profit in such a way as to benefit the peoples and communities with whom we operate, and that dictum is at the very essence of everything that Nikki and I do. And hopefully that my children do as they come into their adult age and and take on more and more responsibilities in whatever they choose to do around the world. What what was it like growing up, Oppenheimer? I mean, did you, you you must have understood fairly early on that your family was a bit different from the other kids at school's families. You went went to good schools and there were privileged kids there as well, but there are levels to this, aren't there? It would be really nice to be able to say, yeah, no, I was somehow this very, this very unique, privileged 
kid, but I think I was incredibly lucky in in the parents I chose. My no, very uh, very smart choice. By the way, way. Wish, most of us wish we'd also make better parent choices. Yes, <laughs> but uh, I mean, crazily, I can remember as a small kid having pocket money, which was less than most of my friends, and particularly my mother. But both my parents insisted that things that I wanted, which weren't you know, your gifts from them, I had to pay for out of my pocket money. And I, I learned how to save early on. I learned where value was. I can remember desperately as a youngster rushing around Kalani Mall trying to figure out how to make what savings I had go so far as to buy all the Christmas presents for family members coming to Christmas. And it, you know, I guess that's, that's, that's what everybody does and yeah. but it's it wasn't like oh you just like something and you buy it no it was all really value driven but but did you but did you know that your family was different did you know that there from an early age that there was a different burden of responsibility on you was that sort of inculcated into you in those early days or did it sort of was it was it something you kind of absorbed along the way if you like so it's an interesting question, and it's a really interesting one for so many different reasons. I mean, fundamentally, most young adults go through a period of rebellion against their parents and rebellion against whatever the status quo is that they, they're presented with. And I certainly went through a rebellious period, and I guess the rebellion most likely should have been against this this sense of oblig um, duty and, and obligation. <clears throat> but the reality of it is I don't think I can recall a single conversation with my parents or my grandparents on either side which said, you will. It was always, you must follow what you want to do in your life and make your life a success and in doing that, make a contribution to the environment you're in. And it's kind of hard to rebel against that. And so <laughs> I, I ended up, I think, getting hoodwinked into coming into the family business. And I was hoodwinked into coming into the family business in that I was introduced to it at an incredibly young age. You know, um, my father used to collect me on the half days at school uh, at lunch and instead of going home to sit there because my mother was doing stuff with education and the Montessori method in South Africa, I used to go to the office quite often and, and I'd run, had the run of, of 44 Main Street and you know, as a 10, 12-year-old, so long as I wasn't obnoxious and interfering and got in the way of people, I was basically allowed to sit in on any meeting that took place. And I can remember sitting in on, on conversations which were, in hindsight, absolutely at the, at the apex of so many great things that were happening in South Africa in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. And likewise, when I was in school in the UK, I, when I was back here in the summer, I used to, because I didn't have that many friends in South Africa, because I was, you know, all my, all my contacts and everything else were in the UK, I spent a lot of time. Uh, likewise, in the office and sitting in meetings and learning at the feet of masters. And 
So when it came time for me to actually start getting involved, I had a leg up on everybody else because I already had um, imbibed five, ten years of, of, of knowledge, which I hadn't even realized I was imbibing yeah. at the time. So, it, it, again, you want to be successful in your life. And here I had a competitive advantage against everybody else, which yeah. was kind of hard to beat. So it was easy to stay in the family business. <laughs> really, there wasn't a moment where it was, yeah. this is a duty, this is an obligation, this is what you got to do. This was just fun, exciting, and interesting and a place where you felt you could make a difference i really enjoyed michael cardo's book um on harry your grandfather um mm. he had access to your family uh, sort of archives and it shows how massively influential the family has been throughout the 20th century Ernest uh, kicking it off and and then how they became increasingly globally influential as well um and it's it's astonishing in a world without conference calls whatsapp um and the ability to to you know for an overnight flight in many cases the influence of the oppenheimers worldwide and and i'm sure you'll 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 take issue with some of the with some of the the way in which the book has interpreted the family papers and stuff but it 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 comes with an incredible legacy of, of, of influence and that influence then comes to bear and I got, I got the sense when uh, we chatted very briefly at the South Africa Future Trust that you remain committed to the South African environment in the same way as your forebears have been um, and that you continue to invest a bit like your great-grandfather did when he established essentially, and I think we can say he did establish the commercial um, sort of copper belt of Zambia, for example, and Mm -hmm. other mining areas in in Africa. And you're kind of following not a dissimilar path in some respects. Yeah, I I guess the, the most important thing to think about is how do you, create and build sustainable, engaged enterprises that touch enormous numbers of people. And I've been thinking a lot about somebody sitting, and and I have the utmost respect for a lot of these guys, but you have somebody who's sitting in front of a computer screen and tracking stocks and buying and selling stuff, and they can make a huge fortune, and they're incredibly smart and and, and articulate and, and thoughtful in what they do but do they actually put food on the table of a family in Kailicha or um, a township outside Lusaka and if you want to create an integrated society which functions in an effective and dynamic way, you have to create opportunities for every single person in that society so that tomorrow is better for them than, than today and next month is better than tomorrow and next year is better than next month. And how do you do that? You do that by building the balance sheet that creates the opportunities and the values. And you need people across the spectrum. It doesn't really, you know, some, sometimes... Re- involving large sums of capital, sometimes involving small sums of capital, from the SMME to the multinational conglomerate, to invest in building additional goods and services, building the capacity for additional goods and services in the space. And if you do that, and you do it successfully, you create 
an environment where people really look forward to the next opportunity. And I fear that so much in the world, and here I include South Africa, we're in a space where you look at tomorrow with trepidation. You look at tomorrow yeah. with what's next going to hit me, what's going to make my life more difficult, not, oh, what can I do tomorrow that's going to make my life better? And I'm a great believer that by partnering with people, by partnering with society, by partnering with all the stakeholders in a business, and by bringing capital to bear to support those ambitions and those entrepreneurial spirits that exist across all enterprises, you can create communities who really look to tomorrow as, as an exciting prospect of betterment, not this one of, oh, my God, what's going to happen next? Uh, and I mean, I got that sense of the, at the SA Future Trust that this is a new, um, this is a, a particular project that's taking hold in South Africa. Were you? What was your sense of it? I mean, the sort of people that were there, the sort of the hunger, not only for networks and capital, but just this hunger to make tomorrow better. I, I, I felt really good about the people who were there and their ambitions. I mean, you were there, Bruce. I, I mean, I felt like at the end of the two days the community that had come to, to Gallagher were unique in, in, in their, their transformed outlook. They really felt empowered to, to grasp their own environment and, make, and own it and make it better. And what we're trying to achieve in the South Africa Future Trust is, is that on steroids. We're trying to create communities that see their neighbor as part of a success story, not as somebody who may be trying to steal their lunch. And to do that, you have to know your neighbor and you have to understand how your neighbor can participate with you so that the whole is better than the sum of the parts. And, and I think in the South Africa Future Trust, we, we have a, the beginnings of a very faint roadmap to a different way to approach that challenge to how so much of the world has approached it in the, in the late 20th, early 21st century. Where do you see the big opportunities for South African entrepreneurs? I was talking to one of the, the most remarkable tech businesses in South Africa that is increasingly globalizing. And one of the questions from the audience uh, after I spoke there was, you know, where do you see the tech infrastructure in South Africa? And I, I really struggle to give some tangible examples. There are lots of people doing wonderful things, but they're quite isolated. And you get the sense that we really need to create, I hate the term, but ecosystems of collegial support, competitive support. And Palo Alto didn't just happen, but it, it, it just it occurred in a way that was supportive and collegial and competitive and ego-driven. And it just created this most amazing creative environment for tech companies to succeed. And I wonder if that's part of the thinking behind the SA Future Trust. Yes, I think we, we're approaching it somewhat differently, but, but fundamentally, yes, we want to create these ecosystems. And the way we've thought about it is, is maybe a little different. Uh, if you think about the conversation you and I are having right now, uh, and we know each other and we've, we've spent time together, we can have a pretty nuanced, sophisticated, and complex conversation about a number of issues, whether it's entrepreneurial enterprise, small business, politics, you name it, because we have a first-order 
relationship. How you would translate my ideas in a conversation to your friends and colleagues would, by and of its very nature, lose some of that sophistication, but not a lot. As your friends then shared it beyond to their friends, the level of complexity and sophistication and nuance that was in the first conversation begins to fall away in a logarithmic process. And by the time you get to the fourth and fifth iteration or fourth or fifth uh, order of separation, you really get forced into a conversation which sadly is, is, is one which is governed and, and motivated by the lowest common denominator. And when you really unpack what is the lowest common denominator for society, for mankind, it's it's security it's physical yeah. security it's food security it's educational security it's it's mental security but it's ultimately all about security and security is about protecting your own and when you have communities who are not connected who aren't first second order separated but rather fourth fifth order separated then it's about i will protect my own and i will pull to me all that i can and damn the consequences on others. <laughs> yeah. By contrast, when you're in a, in a first order or a second order con- conversation, you can see the benefit of the whole. Mm. And you can understand that working in concert, in cooperation, you can do so much more than you can do by yourself as an individual. But to get there, you have to move beyond that security-founded uh, conversation. And so a lot of what we're trying to do at the foundation is is – uh, sorry, not the foundation of the future trust, right, uh, is, is, is imagine ways to build those four, first, second order uh, relationships and to focus on them and to uh, put fertilizer on them so that they strengthen. Yeah. So you create these really dynamic, powerful groups of what we like to call hyperlocal communities, which are already measured and understood by being one or two orders of separation apart from one another. We've got two minutes left. Um, Your great-grandfather, you quoted him earlier, Ernest, 1954, says you've got to be profitable to create a sustainable business to help keep doing what it is that you do within communities and everything else. Uh, Tomo Piketty in Capital in the 21st Century um, was very critical of multi-generational wealth. And uh, I'm sure there are many families who, over time, forget their obligations and go through all kinds of um, wealth-induced traumas of their own. But, but there's a very clear sense here that this is while you, you invest in businesses and you want to make a return and you want to make profit, there's also a very deep sense of purpose here, which is hopefully going to be driving a new generation of Oppenheimers to carry on using some of the capital for hopefully profit, but also for good. I think, uh, you know, Bruce, this is, you know, we're time constrained tonight and maybe – you must come for dinner and we can finish this conversation. Finally. Jeez, uh, I've worked re- hard on this. Finally, there's an invite. Right, good. <laughs> <laughs> there's always an invite. But the nature of this is actually, if you're going to build a sustainable factory or, or organization or business, you need permanent capital. Yeah. And 
capital that is sourced in a flighty way that is where the value of that capital is less determined by what balance sheet it actually represents and more by what the market is prepared to pay uh, isn't that stable. And what's neat is, and it's shown in all the statistics globally, that family capital, as it's invested, tends to be stickier, more permanent than any other form of capital out there. Uh, and we as a, as, as a class, if you want to call it that, those who have capital to deploy, whether it's an entrepreneur going into the second generation or whether it's uh, a 17th generation European family who have found ways to continually reinvest in the real business of what they do, have created enormous contributions to society. If they fall into the trap of simply investing in the stock market and mm. being those smart people behind a computer screen who don't create jobs, don't create opportunities for others, then I would have a tendency to agree with Piketty. And that's where I think I may be a little different to a lot of people. I really do believe in yeah. building business. We must leave it there, unfortunately. But thank you, Jonathan, very, very much indeed. John